We're reading from page 55 in the Bibles in your seats. Uh, so Exodus chapter 13, verse, from verse 17 all the way through to the end of chapter 14. Or you can turn on your phones and Google it. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had said to the sons of Israel, solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. And they moved on from Succoth and encamped at Etham, on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, and they might, that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pi-Hahirath, between Migdol and the sea, in front of Baal-Zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, They are wandering in the land, and the wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward his people. And they said, What is this that we have done, that we have let Israel go from, us, go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them encamped at the sea by Pihahirath in front of Baal-Zephon. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us, bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not. Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you, and you have only to be silent. The Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of God who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them and the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, 
coming between the host of, Egypt, of, host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night, and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord, in the pillar of fire and of cloud, looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and his servant Moses. Great, if you can keep that passage open. Well read, I must say. That was a big, uh, big chunk for you to do this morning. This morning, of course, we're looking at that passage from the Exodus that we just read. But let me just fill us in on what's happened, in case you don't know the story of the Exodus. So God's people, they've been in Egypt for about 400 years, and they've become the Egyptian slaves. They witnessed genocide of their own sons being slaughtered. But God promised that he would rescue his people. He promised that he would bring them out. And so God brings these, these ten plagues, these ten blows against the Egyptians. And one by one smashes the Egyptians down until finally... Pharaoh lets the Israelites go. And so out go about a million people. The entire slave labor force of the Egyptians so that they can go and worship the Lord. And that's where we find ourselves up to for our passage this morning. We've heard it read, but let me pray again and ask the Lord for his help. Let's pray. Our great God and Father, we ask this morning, may you incline our hearts to your word, we ask. Free us from all, all distractions, all things that threaten to take our mind off you. Give us ears to hear, we ask. Incline our hearts to hear your voice. And to may you open our eyes, we ask. See truly wonderful things in your word this morning. And as your people here unite our hearts together in your steadfast love and satisfy our hearts in your faithfulness to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's in his name we pray. Amen. When I was at uh, school, we had these posters on the wall and there was these, uh, a big roll, top of the roll, bottom of the roll, 
And in the middle, you had uh, spaghetti bolognese, you had a curry in there, you had a roast dinner in there, you had a big cheeseburger in there. And I saw the, these posters at school and I thought, it's a pretty good sandwich, to be honest. And on the bottom of the poster, it said, you are what you eat. Clearly, if I'm honest, the healthy eating message didn't quite get through to me on that poster. But the biggest problem with the poster is that's not true, though, is it? You aren't what you eat. A better slogan, I think, from the book of Exodus is that you are what you do. Who you are is reflected in what you do. You see, it's right the way through the book of Exodus. You see, in chapter 3, when God reveals himself as the Lord, as Yahweh. And then it's as if the rest of the book is him explaining, demonstrating who he is, what his name means. God's deeds define his character. We see that in our passage this morning. Turn over to verse 4 of chapter 14. Notice that this whole event is so that the people will know, the Egyptians will know who the Lord is. Look at verse 4 of chapter 14. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. See, one of the striking things for us is that we worship the same God of the Exodus. And this I mean, it's pretty epic, isn't it? This epic event, I think it's a fair description, is given to us to teach us that in the most difficult times of life, in the times when we are most, most tempted to doubt God, this passage teaches us that we can always trust him because he has fought to save us. Two points for us this morning. Doubting God in the face of danger And secondly, trusting God in the face of his deliverance. Let's look at that first point, doubting God in the face of danger. Let's picture the scene. You're one of these Israelites marching out of Egypt and all you've ever known in your entire life is oppression. Perhaps you've seen loved ones die of exhaustion. Others killed in construction accidents. Perhaps your own son, murdered in the genocide. And yet throughout all that, you've held fast the promises of God. His promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that God will save his people, bring them out of the famine, bring them out of Egypt. And now, you have seen the God you worship come in such power and obliterate the Egyptians, smashing them so hard it's as if creation began to undo itself. And now for the first time, you walk out of this oppressive nation free, completely free. And Lord leads you out. Not only has he saved you, he's there with you, and he leads you out, and then... I wonder if you notice the surprise in the passage. Turn back to the start of our reading in verse 17 of chapter 13. Notice that as they go out, God doesn't lead them the way that you'd expect him to. 
the people you think would head to Canaan in the north, the promised land, then why are they heading south? Notice why God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. From the perspective of the Jewish people, of the Israelites, notice at the start, this makes no sense. Why would they go south? And yet we see right at the start of the story, God knows better. That God has a plan that he's going to see it through. Because on, on that short route straight up to the promised land, the Philistines, they were a tough militarized people. It would have been carnage. The Israelites right at the beginning would have been wiped out. They're not ready for war. And Yahweh knew that. The Lord knew that. And so he leads them south, away from that. Meanwhile, back in Egypt, it's as if Pharaoh's just woken up from the shock of everything which has happened there. And he's realized now that his entire workforce, they've gone. He's literally let them walk free. And so the most powerful man in the world at the time, summons the most powerful army in the world at the time to go after God's people. He takes a read 600 of his best chariots along with the other chariots. Imagine that today in the wilderness, it'd be like, what, 600 Challenger tanks roaring through the desert and some other tanks as well chucked in there, coming to defeat this weak, pretty much unarmed enemy. At the time, this is an arsenal so impressive, no other army would stand a chance, let alone a bunch of former slaves. And so put yourself in the shoes of the Israelites. On one side, camped by the sea, the immovable object of the Red Sea, and then the seemingly unstoppable force of the Egyptian army roaring down towards them. And who's put them there? What's oh, the Lord? I wonder how they felt at that time. Well, let's read it. Have a look from verse 10 of chapter 14. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us and bring us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. I was thinking, where's their confidence gone? They were walking out of Egypt, fine, the Lord is with them, and the Lord's still with them. They seem to have forgotten everything that's just happened to them. Their eyes are so focused on the danger in front of them that they've completely forgotten that the Lord who saved them is right beside them. They see the danger, they see the situation in front of them, and they, they complain to Moses, and they complain to Moses, is, it's basically complaining to God. Just look again at verse 11. I mean, talk rose-tinted glasses here. I mean, they danger was life better in Egypt for them. And yet we look at their situation we see how they're feeling. 
We can sympathize, can't we, with them? God has led them out. He's led them to this place. They've been obedient to him. And now they're in trouble. I just don't understand what's going on. They don't understand why God would allow this. They come face to face with fear and danger. And they're filled with fear and doubt. Imagine for many of us in the room, at times in life, perhaps that sounds familiar. And if it doesn't, there will be times when it will sound familiar. Because if you follow Jesus, he will lead you into situations which are hard. Situations which are painful. Situations we have no control over at all. And so the question will come, why? Why, God, why have you made me go through all of this? In a sense, we've all had a feeling of that through the pandemic, haven't we? Why did that happen? Why did I have to go through all of that? And yet, for many of us, harder things will come. Things that will cause us to perhaps fear, doubt to grow in the Lord's goodness. And when those times come, we ask, why? Why have you done this, God? Why have you allowed this to happen? Why did my mother get that cancer diagnosis? Why is no one at school like me? Why did I have to lose my job? Why does my child get bullied? Why did my son commit suicide? Why has my daughter come out as transgender? Why do I think so many dark things it causes me to despair? Perhaps you're here and you're a new Christian and things start off going great, but now your family, your friends, they're mocking you. And you think, but I've done nothing wrong, God. Why have you let this happen? See, here's the thing, we can't stay at the why question. Because if we do, we can become like the Israelites and those, those rose-tinted glasses can go back on and we can look back and think, maybe things are better without God. All because our eyes are filled with fear, what lies ahead? And doubt has grown. I mean, just, just think again of what's going on in our passage here. God doesn't read, lead the Israelites down to the Red Sea and suddenly go, oh no, my map was the wrong way around. You should have gone left and not right. No, he is in control. He knows what is best, even when all that we see is danger and hardship. And that's true of the Christian life. Jesus doesn't say, come and follow me and life will be hunky-dory. He says, come and die. Come and, pick up with, come and pick up your cross and follow me and join with me in suffering. But suffering which is never pointless. I don't know why God puts us in difficult situations. Perhaps ones that you're in right now. What I do know is that in situations like this, God wants us to trust him in our suffering and doubt him so that he may get the glory. Now, as I say that, that might sound horribly cruel. Why should God lead us to places? Why do I have to suffer 
so that he gets glory. Think of it like this. When we think of God, God is not a larger version of me. He's not a larger version of you. If I was to seek my own glory, I'd be a total megalomaniac. Back in Charleston, I'd be a total bam. At times I am one. If all you saw was me seeking my own glory, you'd be like, come on now, Craig. Stop being a dafty. Life's not about you. And you'd be right. If I live seeking my glory, it would not just be wrong, but it would be evil because I am a finite sinner. I am not the center of the universe. But God, God is not like me. He's not like you. He's so different. God is spirit, infinite, eternal, unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, goodness, and truth. He is all these things. He is the center of the universe. All things are made by him, for him, and through him. So it's only right that he gets the glory. But here's the thing is that when God seeks his glory, we are the ones who benefit. When God seeks his glory, he does so by saving messed up sinners like you and I. He does so by, by serving people like you and I who don't deserve to be served. Like us, the Israelites aren't squeaky clean. They aren't perfectly holy people. And they're quick to forget what God has done for them. Just like you and I. And so when God does lead us into those difficult times, when we are filled with fear and doubt in who God is, what his goodness is like, what his character is like, what we need to do is not focus on what causes us to doubt. Instead, look to him the one who has fought for us, the one who has saved us. And that's what the Israelites are going to do. They begin to trust God in the face of his deliverance. That's our second point this morning. The people are standing there, they're looking at the danger looming towards them. Just look what Moses says in verse 13 of chapter 14. Fear not. Don't be afraid. Why? Look at the next verse. Because the Lord will fight for you. You have only to be silent. Are there words of comfort? Fear not. Think of the, the child who's scared. The hand from the relative. Fear not. Why shouldn't they fear? Because the one who's saying it to them. Don't fear, because the Lord will fight for you. You have only to be silent. You've only to stand there and be still. And so the Lord tells Moses to lift up his staff, to stretch out his hand. And notice in verse 19, God moves to surround his people, to protect them from the danger of the Egyptians behind them. And a mighty wind comes and divides the sea so the Israelites can walk straight through. I wonder if you've seen the film Prince of Egypt um, by DreamWorks, little films on Netflix just now. If it rains this afternoon, there's an afternoon activity for you. And I love this scene. I love this scene in the film when the, the seas part and the Israelites begin to walk through and there's, there's a flash of lightning and you see the fish in the water beside them. And they walk through these 
towering skyscrapers of water on either side. And as the Israelites are making their way across, they're almost at the other side. And notice the Egyptians, they're, they're let in. They don't force their way in. God lets them into the sea. And they start charging through. Imagine all that pent-up frustration, ready to get these people who've walked out on them. And the chariots, they head through the valley, and Yahweh throws them into confusion. The Lord jams their wheels, and the, the Egyptians, they, they begin to panic. And Moses told again, verse 27, to put out his hand. Look with me from verse 27. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen of all the host of Pharaoh, that's the whole army of Pharaoh that followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. I love that line at the end. Just, just so we know, they've all been drowned, but just so we know, not one of them remained. And how would you react if you're an Israelite on the other side? Well, look at how they respond in verse 31. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord. And they believed in the Lord and his servant Moses. I mean, when you're in that situation, such awesome power, such control, such might, you've witnessed before your very eyes. Fear is the right response, isn't it? Not, not a timid fear of God, but rather, Wow reverence as to who he is, reverence to what he's, he's done for you. A moment ago, you were doubting, saying it was better in Egypt. And yet, in spite of that, he still saved you. Sometimes in my prayer life, I you, sometimes you view God a bit like a, a cosmic Siri or Alexa, can't you? You put in your your requests to God and he does them and sometimes you think he, he, he mishears you and does them differently, a bit like Siri, never gets anything right, does it? But instead, what reminds of here is that God's not like that. He's not to be messed around with. He is a warrior who fights for his people and there's no warrior like him. In fact, that's actually how the Israelites are going to sing about God. They go on and sing of the, the victory that the Lord has won for them. You know, it's, not, it's not sunshine and leaf like you might hear at Easter Road. Instead, in the next chapter, in verse 3, they sing, The Lord's a man of war. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord, Yahweh, is his name. That's their response and song to him. And so for us to go against this God, that's, that's a terrifying thing, isn't it? This is not a God we want to be against. We were praying earlier, weren't we, for the, the thousands of people here who don't know Jesus, who are on their way to hell. That's why we're going to the borders. 115,000 people there, very few people, very few churches there, 15,000 in Gala. People who are going to face this God, face the wrath for their sin. This God we read of here, he's not some sort of heavenly ogre though. He wants us to be on his side. 
We are the ones who have left him. We are the ones who have rejected him. And he wants to fight for us, not against us. But the only way that can happen is by trusting in Jesus. I love the book of Exodus. Such a great story. Especially this episode. So cool. I mean, it's no surprise that there's so many films made about this book. But the Exodus, it's a, it's a true story that points towards a greater reality. A rescue story. It's not just for the Israelites here, but for everyone who would trust in Jesus. You turn to a book in the New Testament like John's Gospel. Time and time again, Jesus says that he is Lord. He is Yahweh. He is the God of the Exodus. He does miracles similar to the ones we see in the Exodus. He crosses water, not by parting it, but by walking on top of it. He provides for people there, not by raining down manna, but by providing bread. But Jesus came not to save us from an Egyptian army. He came not to save us from getting wet. But he came to rescue us from death because of our sin, to rescue us from the devil. But God's anger for our sin still has to go on someone. As one poet writes, we are spared that burning flood only by the blood. Only by Jesus taking the punishment for our sin that we deserve on the cross can we be saved. And that offers open to everyone. So if you're not a Christian, that invitation is for you. What Jesus has done for us, imagine he's standing there in that parted ocean, in that parted sea of God's judgment. We pass through safe to our heavenly home because the full ferocity of those waves of God's judgment poured onto him and our sin was left there with him. And what reminded for next was 14 is that if you come to Jesus, he will fight for you. In fact, he has fought for you. He will fight for you so that your greatest problem in life is dealt with. And your problems right now might be monumental. A pain so great you didn't know it could hurt this much. Depression so dark you can't remember what it felt like to feel any different to this. But we need reminded that as awful as those things are, as painful as those things are, they are insignificant compared to our sin. And Jesus has fought for your salvation up to the point that it cost him his life. It was at the point of costing Jesus' life to achieve our salvation that he, that he defeated our enemies, just like in the Red Sea. It was through the Red Sea God's people were saved. It was through the Red Sea God's enemies were defeated. And same with the cross as well. It's through the cross that we are saved. Through the cross that Jesus' enemies are defeated. If you want to turn, feel free to turn to Colossians chapter 2. Let me read for us from verse 13 where it says this. And you, who are dead in your trespasses and your uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, that is Jesus, having forgiven us all our trespasses by cancelling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. All glory be to him.
But let me end with where we started in this passage. Let's go back to where the Israelites found themselves. Down a road they didn't expect God to lead them down. And when God leads you down roads that cause you to fear, whether it's because of pain or relational suffering or physical suffering or the darkness of mental anguish, the fear of having to sell your belongings, pay your bills, you may never know why he led you there. But when we ask the question why, the Bible always gives us the answer, who? It tells us who is the one who sits on the throne. Who it is that does these things. Who it is that loves us with a love that died for us. And so when we are filled with fear of what lies ahead of us, we look to the God who is always with us by his spirit. Remembering that he gave up everything. Everything to have you. So he'll never forget you. He'll never give you up. What's the line of that hymn? There is, there is no more for heaven now to give. That's true, isn't it? And for some of us, we do that more instinctively than others. Just think of the Israelites crossing the Red Sea, no doubt as they were marching through, getting saved to the other side. Some were going through the swagger. Come on, Yahweh, you've got this. They were confident. They were trusting the Lord. No doubt there's others who are terrified, desperate to get past the other people to get there first and get safe. But both were saved. Because their salvation wasn't dependent on how they felt, but rather it was on the God who has fought for them. And friends, God has fought for you. He has won. So keep looking to Jesus. Keep looking to what he has done for you and will do for you. And keep spurring one another on as well, like I'm sure the Israelites were as they crossed the Red Sea. Let me pray. Our Father, how great is the gift of salvation that we have in Christ. How awesome is your power. How strong is your might. How faithful are your promises that you always fulfill your promises. As you see in passages like this, in ways that we cannot possibly imagine, and yet still you fulfill them. And in all that, you get the glory. Father, forgive us, we ask, when we become so curled in upon ourselves. When we're so filled with fear and doubt in who you are. said, help us to look to you. Give us people who come alongside us, we ask, to point one another to you. And may we be people who point one another to you as well. So we can trust you, seeing that you have delivered us. That you freed us from Satan, sin and death, that they have now have no claim over us. So may you help us to live in light of that, we ask, spurring one another on until the day we meet you face to face. And we pray all these things in your name and for your glory, Lord Jesus. Amen.